Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Mets are amazing, 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 amazing. There's a fly ball hit out to left, waiting is Jones. The Mets are the world champion. Here's the one, two, three. Check him out. Steve has 19 strikeouts. Swung on, hit on the ground towards first. Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Home run. Mike Piazza and the Mets lead three to two. To left field. Floyd. And after winning left shot over the National League, the Mets have a title to show for it. 2006 National League East champions. Here's the payoff pitch from Familia to Fowler on the way. And it's in there. Strike three call. The Mets win the pennant. The New York Mets It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Wednesday, June the 12th, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at MetsmorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Hope everybody's having a great Wednesday, maybe a little bit of a long day if you went to the ballpark yesterday or a late night. Apologize coming to you a couple of days later than normal. Blog Talk Radio had some significant uh, uh, technical difficulties, so uh, fortunately everything is okay. I had a, an, an opportunity to catch up with Joe DeMeo of SNY, longtime friend. Uh, you guys probably follow on Twitter at PSL to Flushing, and we had a chance to talk about the Mets draft. Uh, some. Potential reinforcements that uh, may be available in the minor leagues if the Mets need to go and dip in there to help the current roster. And we also got into Anthony Kay. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about Anthony Kay, the Mets, uh, probably the top pitching prospect, a uh, local kid from uh, Long Island out of Stony Brook. So you'll hear that in just a couple of minutes. Great segment and uh, really that time of the year where we get into that. Uh, as far as uh, where I start, it's been a really good 10 days or so for this Mets club. Now you're not going to read too much about that in the, in the, in the news. You're not going to hear the beat talk about that a lot because they're going to be focused on this club and what they don't have and how they're still under 500 and really everybody feeling that eventually, even though they'll, they'll play well and they'll get close that this team will turn into a pumpkin and disappoint because that's what they've done the last couple of years. And, and to a certain degree, that's what they did in 2016. But since the day that the Mets hired a former agent, a guy that worked his way up through a major company at CAA, and no one really talks about that, 
Brody Van Wagenen has shown you what his mindset is. And it's big. It's thinking big. It's going big. And it's really aligned with what you see in today's game where everybody's they're going big. They want the home run, the big strikeout guy. It's, it's home run or nothing in some cases. Because what you saw last week at the draft, and now that the dust is settled and they've already signed uh, Brett Beatty and a, and a number of their middle round picks, and we'll see how they do with the other uh, two big picks, uh, Josh Wolf and Matthew Allen. Uh, and Matthew Allen, the big name, the Boris client, the guy that's committed to Florida, but you know for the right price will be able to uh, be had and, and, and be signed, and, and potentially a third round pick that Probably could be a top pick in a, in a couple of years if he goes to school and comes back out. Brody Van Wagen is a home run hitter, and he goes big, and he thinks big, and he did that with this draft. And you hear Joe talk about Brody's involvement with the draft in just a few minutes when he comes on. And you have to respect that, and you have to like that, and you have to appreciate that mindset because that's what this team has been lacking for so long. Omar Minaya did that at one point in time. 15 years ago or so, when he came in after the Scott Casimir debacle and came in and signed Carlos Beltran and went after Carlos Delgado and nearly brought the Mets to World Series. And I know what you're thinking. Well, how did that work out? Well, it wasn't all bad. I think there was problems there that we don't have to rehash now. And maybe Omar in the long run wasn't, and I know he wasn't, built to be the guy, the executive, the 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 general manager, he was more of a, a scout or scouting director or assistant GM disguised in that role. Brody's someone that ran an organization already. Omar didn't before he came into this. So you already have maybe some of those concerns put to the side. But in a lot of ways, Brody Van Wagenen is doing what Omar Manaya did 15 years ago, coming in, taking a team that's perceived a certain way, that's conservative, stuck kind of in the middle, trying to push it forward, whether that's going after Cano and Edwin Diaz and trading their top offensive prospect, whether that's putting the chips to the center of the table and saying that we're right there with everybody in the division, come come get us. And he's, he's never going to hear that down this year from the media. Now he's doing it with the draft, with saying, you know, I got a third-round pick. He didn't go out and sign Dallas Keuchel. He didn't go out and sign Kimberly. He didn't lose any draft assets. Yeah, I could go and I could be conservative. I could get quantity in this draft and I could, you know, spread the wealth around. But no, he goes and says, let's take this chance. Let's take this risk. Now, I think it's a calculated risk that has a high, higher percentage chance of being successful than many may think because the guy, it was Anthony DeComo that, uh, or Anthony McCarron, I don't know who it was that, that I saw uh, wrote this, I think, over at MLB.com. He got on the phone with Boris, a guy who dislikes him, a competitor at one point before he drafted Allen. So he has an idea of what the price tag is and what's going to happen. And look, Boris is a snake. You can't trust him either. So I you know, I wouldn't take too much stock. But this guy's not dumb. He knows that he has a good chance at signing him. The fun is just be- beginning. Uh, Beatty signed, so he's already got his first-round pick uh, down pat. And the mantra has been win now and win in the future. And he's continuing to balance that out. Now, is it going to work? We don't know. Could it turn out as badly as the end of the Manaya regime uh, turned out? Perhaps. But he's going for it. And I, and that's all you can really ask for if you're a fan. What I don't like and why I was so against the long play with the analytics-based young GM is they all have their blueprint. They all have their formula. They all have their template. It's all the same. They're no different than the standard establishment that they criticized Uh, for many, many years as they were trying to break into the business. They have their principles and their ideas, and there's no deviation from it. You come in, you break these organizations down, you tear them to the studs, and you rebuild them up. And there's nothing wrong with that because that can work. You've seen it work with the Astros and the Cubs, but it's a long play. And if if there are mistakes or debilitating mistakes, that three-year, four-year, five-year plan turns into a 10-year plan. And you know what? With the kind of money the Mets have, and you could criticize and say that they're not spending enough, and we could debate that. Uh, to the end of the day, there's 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 points on both sides, and and if they go out and spend some money on this draft and 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 put, pour it all in, and it's a little bit more socialistic with the draft because of the pool monies and what have you, um, you can't you know they're doing what you would expect a big market team to do with taking a guy like Allen. Um, the Mets don't have to go and do that. 
They could win now and win in the future. And Kelnick is going to be this modern-day version of Scott Kazmier. The, the media is going to dangle him in front of you to, to, to troll you. They're not going to focus on the fact that there are other guys in the system. They're not going to focus on the fact that the kid's still very young. He's not even 20. And he, you know what? He may very well turn out to be uh, Christian Yelich. But also there were comps to, to Mark Kotze. And right now, he's part of the collateral damage of a mindset, which is win now, win in the future. And as we get closer to the deadline, we'll see how Brody manages and handles the farm system. Everybody went crazy about the Kelnick situation, as if the guy coming in wasn't ever going to build his own farm system. He brought all these guys in, guys from the Red Sox, a very successful organization. What did you think? He was just going to sit around and rest on his laurels and just live off of Alderson's drafts, which were eh at times, and not have a plan for his own farm system? Maybe that's why he looked at the farm system and said, look, we got some guys here. Kelnick's probably a stud. I want to win now. I want to rebuild in, in my mold with my philosophy, you know. Did he trade away Babe Ruth? Probably not. And yeah, if you, if you keep Kelnick, you're probably more in a rebuild mode. You know? and, and, and you have to also look at that trade as two separate trades. And Rich Catino has been on here, and he and I have talked about it, and I've talked about it on Twitter. That was a Swarzak Bruce for Cano, and it was Kelnick uh, and Dunn for Diaz. Diaz arguably right up there with Chapman as the best closer in the game. You saw what the Yankees got for Chapman when they traded him a couple of years back. And if things don't work out, even as early as this year, they could trade Diaz and they could get a haul. They could get a haul because I think he's that good. I know he's had a couple of hiccups over the last month, but I think he's that good. And I think that's the way he looks at it. I could get back another Kelnick or Dunn, at the very least Dunn, by trading Diaz because that's a real asset. And that's an asset that maybe that's an overpay when you look at it in a vacuum. But I don't know because... You know, for what teams are asking for sometimes, for in-prime, controllable uh, arbitration guys who are still, or, you know, or pre-arbitration guys who are still very much cost-controlled, even with arbitration, they're cost-controlled. Uh, you, you probably have to pay that kind of price. So things are really looking up. There's a lot of good stuff here. Is it going to work out this year? I don't know. And the next 23 games will tell because between now, the day off today, and the All-Star break, they got 23 games. They're playing the Phillies and the Cubs and the Braves, and they got another series with the Yankees. And really, at the All-Star break, that'll be a couple of weeks before the trade deadline. You'll be you'll be having to make assessments on where you're going to go, and you're going to continue to have to look at this team through the lens of what the general manager's belief system is, which is win now and win in the future. Not win now at all costs, foolishly, but win now with a balance to the future. And there's never a balance in this game anymore. It's all or nothing. It's home run or strikeout. It's you're rebuilding or you're great. And that's why you have so much trash in between. And that's why you have so many empty ballparks because, yes, finances play into that, but there's no reason why you can't do both. Because you get yourself in with 86, 87, 88 wins into a wild card game and win that game, you're right there with the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Red Sox or whoever wins at the top or wins 100 games. That's why it's so scary. You win 100 games, you're in a five-game set, you lose game one at home to a wild-card team who has a hot pitcher. Why wouldn't you want to win? This isn't the NBA. This isn't uh, – even the NFL, I mean, is, is, is not as, you know, crapshoot as people make it out to be once you get into the postseason. This is almost more like NHL. You get a hot goalie and you win. You get a hot pitcher and you win. But the next 23 games will determine where they're going to go and whether they're going to start talking about trading Zach Wheeler and – Noah Syndergaard or uh, next year, or they're really going to bring in reinforcements and try to win this year. And, and I still believe in this team. Uh, I know they're a game under. Uh, I thought the the second game of the doubleheader against a hot team with a lot of offense uh, when they played so poorly in game one was a game again last year that they would have lost. They would have spiraled in that doubleheader. Colorado on Friday after the the near brawl and, and, and the, the performance that the Rockies put on, on a Friday night, that was last year. That's a, a series that the Mets may have gotten swept, and even the Giants series, uh, they lost Game One, uh, should have won that game, lost in extra innings. The rubber game, they're down. You know, they're pulling out games to hang in there, and now they're starting to get healthy. Uh, players are starting to p- perform at their norms. I know that that's hard for people to believe because the Mets have had, and you see what Bruce is doing out in Philadelphia. They have so many players that have come here and. 
and in almost a mystery. Like, how can they not perform to their career norms? Because that's what baseball players do. Yeah, they have extreme cold and hot streaks, but they wind up leveling out unless they're over the hill or having a bad season. And the Mets in the last couple of years have unfortunately picked out of the bin where a lot of guys fall into the, 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 the ladder. So there's a lot of good. I continue to tell you, and this is not me being Pollyannish. This is not me trying to be a fan because, believe me, that's not my M.O. here. And if you listen to this enough, you know that. Yeah, this is entertainment, and I want to keep you hooked on the belief that the Mets are going to be in this because sometimes as you get to the rebuild into the dog days of summer, the numbers on the podcast go down because people are like, ah, Mike, I'll talk to you in, in the hot stove. After July 31st, when things vet themselves out and you spend the last eight weeks just you know, figuring out your football uh, tickets and, and your fantasy football and getting ready for the fall and all the other stuff and the other parts of the season that come with it that don't include Mets postseason baseball or big games in September. I don't think that's going to happen here. I don't think this manager, as much as you dislike him, is uh, as bad as you think. I think these players want to win. I think they have a tough task at hand over the next three weeks. Uh, it's not going to be easy. I think the Braves... Uh, uh, are better than I, I thought. I think the Phillies are going nowhere. But I don't think they're running away to the point where I look at realistically, with 11 of those 23 games being on the road, and the Mets playing so badly on the road, going into the second game yesterday, they had lost 18-22. That's that's a bad NBA team type of record. That's like an NBA extreme. 62 Mets extreme. With 11 of those games at uh, on the road, I mean, I could see the Mets going 14 and 9. You know, kind of kind of going 6 and 5 on the road. Uh, you know, 13 and 10, 8 and 5 at home. You know, maybe uh 7 and 4 on the road if they can really push a couple of series. If they're 6 and 5 on the road, they're going to have to play a little bit better at home. You know, 13 and 10, that puts them a couple of games, 2, 3, 4 games over depending on whether they're doing 13 to 15 wins in that stretch, 15 being on the high end and the really the home run. Uh, they're right there at the All-Star break unless the Braves and the Brewers and the Phillies win at such a high clip that the Mets are looking at being six, seven, eight games behind in the wild card, the second wild card. Then you got to say, hey, that's a lot. Not impossible, but then you have to start thinking about what are you going to get for Wheeler because you could probably still compete with you know, an outside shot at a wild card and trade a Wheeler. I mean, if you start to really tear it up and trade Ramos and Wheeler and maybe even Syndergaard and really dive into the roster, then then it's going to get tough. But even if that's the case, even if that's what we're talking about, and I don't want to go deep into that today, there's still a lot of hope because you have a general manager who thinks big, who's pushing the mindset in this organization to be thinking big. And it's been a really, really, really long time since that's been the case around here. I'll tell you that much. A really long time. It's always infuriated me, especially in a town where there's the Yankees right across town, always in your face, where you had, have, you've had organizations like the, the football giants with what they've done. you got to think big. And it's not just a, a narrative. It's, it is something that is executable. But it starts with thinking big and thinking out of the box and pushing forward and, and fulfilling on that promise. And so far, that, this general manager has done that. It may not be exactly how you like it. It may not, and not everything is going to be successful. And when you think big, you're going to strike out. And maybe Kelnick's that strikeout, and there'll be more. But I think that mindset will play well here, and I think you're going to loop more big fish than you think, and I think you're going to win more than you think. Let's take a quick break. When we return, Joe DeMeo, SNY. We're going to talk Mets draft, uh, some of the reinforcements that potentially could be coming on their way in the minor leagues, and Anthony Kay. You're listening to... The Talking Mets Podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. With the 12th selection of the 2019 MLB draft, the New York Mets select Brett Beatty, a third baseman from Lake Travis High School in Austin, Texas. Enjoying a moment of a lifetime right here. Um, selected by the New York Mets, the 12th overall pick. Uh, Jonathan, tell me, you're a big fan of this kid, high school bat. 
A lot of projectability here, right? Yeah, well, he can really hit. He's going to have a ton of power. There were some questions leading in because he's a little old for his class and there are models that uh, these players have run through that some teams weren't going to like. But after, you know, the, the bats, the high school bats that we've seen so far, he's the best high school bat. I mean, he's got... Well, couldn't you make an argument power. now, Jonathan, that he's the best bat-power combination in the high school? I, I think that's absolutely right, because Riley Green right now is more hit over power. We think the power is going to come. He's got both right now. Uh, whether he plays third long-term, whether he moves to first, I, I don't care. I think he's going to hit. Oh, he's a Texas kid, and uh, he's going to the New York Mets. Uh, Kevin Millar isn't a Texas kid. Now he lives in Texas. And he comes to New York all the time. Uh, he has more on Brett Beatty. All right, thanks, guys. Brett Beatty. When we talk about a third baseman in high school, the size, the power, the zone, he has the whole package right here. And I'm going to show you this, kid. This is power. This is a swing, probably the best swing in the draft, college or high school. But you look at the load, you look at, and I look at legs. I mean, in high school, you don't find kids that are built this way. This right here was dead center, wind blowing in, went in person to see him, Lake Travis High School in Austin, Texas. He's an older senior, he's 19 and a half, but I'm telling you what, this swing plays, and boys, if you're drafting him, he could be up there in two years. Uh, thank you, 1-5, Kevin Millar. Uh, joining us here on draft night, Brett Beatty, six foot three, two hundred eighteen pounds. What was Kevin, your comp? Kevin went to his game, man. That's impressive. He's Freddie Freeman with power. We're back and joining me, longtime friend of the show. Uh, you guys follow him on Twitter at PSL Two Flushing, Port St. Lucie Flushing. Uh, he writes for uh, SNY, The Seven Line. He used to write for me when I had my own website a, a billion years ago. He's been doing this a long time. You see him on the panels at the Queens Baseball Convention. It's Joe DeMeo. Joe, welcome to the program as uh, we prepare for the rubber game of the Mets and Rockies. And a, and a big week here. It's draft week. It's your time of the year. How you doing, first off? And uh, it was, it's been a fun week so far, I, I think, for you. Yeah, I'm doing great. Hope everything's good with you, too. Um, yeah, it's definitely a big week. The draft is something that, like you said, I've been doing for a very long time. I first covered a draft in 2003 when the match dra drafted Phil Umber, number three overall out of Rice. So that was the first draft that I really remember. That's interesting. So here's what I'm going to do for you while you're here. I'm going to play you a clip. Now, you've been on the show, iterations, but since it's been Talking Mets in 2016 – you came on uh, that first draft show we did, and we talked about a bunch of stuff. That's the Anthony Kay, Pete Alonzo, Justin Dundraft. But I pulled up a clip that I want you to listen to. So hold on one second here. I, I think Alonzo's an interesting, very interesting guy. Uh, he's a guy. There's a real hitch in his swing that I think needs to mechanically be ironed out. But if he could, if he could iron out that swing, there is legitimately plus raw power in there with him. Uh, so he, he's very interesting to me. He plays maybe. A, you know, average at best first base, but, you know, he doesn't – he's not going to kill you out there. But you, if you watch him play, you I mean, just watch, if you watch a video, you'll very clearly see kind of the hitch that's going to, I think, be troublesome once he gets into double A and above. But if you could iron that out a little bit, I think uh, I think, I think think there's 20-plus home runs in there in that bat. So I, I, I'm, def I'm definitely a fan of Alonzo. That was you on Pete Alonzo? Almost three I, years ago, June 12, 2016. <laughs> so you weren't wrong, man. They they fixed the, twi the hitch. Yeah. Uh, he yeah. definitely got 20 home run power. And look, he's I think he's a pretty solid for his basement. I mean, he's not great, but he don't kill you out there. And he's great at scoops and stretching. And, and to me, if you could do that as a first baseman and make your throws and, and not botch the range too much, uh, you hit 50 home runs, which he's on pace uh, for. Uh, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, I, I got one right, it seems, so that's pretty good. But, yeah, I definitely meant 20 home runs by June. That's what I meant. I just forgot to I don't know. Part, I guess. <laughs> we were comparing him to Lucas Duda, I mean, at that time. And, yeah. um, I mean, it just, it just goes to show you how tough it is because if you go up and down, and look, uh, the Mets are really excited about this draft. This is the first Brody Van Wagenen draft. And I would say there's more excitement for this draft than there was for Sandy Alderson's first draft. Um. Talk, tell me what you think. I mean, clearly the Mets, it's going to be about money, right? So they got the, um, uh, you know, they, they, they're going to have to use their pool money in the first, you know, two or three picks. 
they went out and they did something on day two by going and get Matthew Allen out of uh, out of Florida, and they're going to have to pay him big dollars. They they took a, a college uh, high school bat number one, high school arm uh, number two. But the Mets are really excited. I don't know if it's just because of those three, or is it because overall, um, you know, with Brody and and I know uh, 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 Tommy Tanoy has been around a while, so. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I think they should be excited about this draft. Uh, they started, like you said, with Brett Beatty, number one, uh, high school third baseman out of Texas. And he's a little older for a high school kid. He's actually going to turn 20 in November. Uh, he was held back in the fifth grade because his mother became the principal of the school that he was at. And they just, like, opted to hold him back. Not a dumb kid by any means. He's graduating with a 4.0 GPA. So, but he's got a big time raw power. You're talking upwards of 70 raw power on a 20 to 80 scale. So that's a 25, 30 home run type bat. It's just a tough projection to make. And a lot of people frown upon taking older high school kids because they're playing against kids who are three years younger than them, two years younger than things like that. But the Mets have painted it kind of like last year when he was the same age as all of his peers he was the Gatorade player of the year for the state of Texas, which is the best high school player in the state of Texas. So I think there's a lot of upside with the bat. And given his age, there's a chance that he might be a little quicker through the system than a typical high school player would be. And second, they took Josh Wolf, uh, sort of a little undersized right-hander out of high school. He's 6'2". He bulked up this year to like a buck 80. And they, they, certainly want him to fill out more probably again to the 200 205 range but he, he was compared to Lance McCullers Jr. of the Astros by MLB.com when he was coming out of high school so I think you've got a high upside arm with a fastball that's up to 97 a plus curveball and then where the draft really comes into shape like you said the third round Matt Allen out of Seminole High School in Florida he was a higher ranked prospect than the Mets first round pick by MLB.com and he's a big projectable body at 6'3", 215 already, fastball up to 98, plus curveball, average changeup, ability to kind of command this stuff pretty good for a high school kid, and just a really repeatable delivery. He's a very exciting prospect, one of the few pitchers in the whole draft that have the potential to be a top two member of a, ro- a rotation one day. So like you said, money is certainly going to be very important there. They went college senior rounds four through 10, which they're called senior signs, which means they sign for very, very low money, sometimes as low as $5,000, sometimes as much as like $25,000. So they'll save a bunch of bonus money there. And there's belief that Beatty, the first round pick, will actually sign on their slot as well. And if that's the case, they're going to be working very hard to meet Matt Allen's asking price, which, depending on where you read, could be anywhere between three and four million dollars. And look, I think it was Anthony DeComo had said before they made the pick that Brody Van Wagenen called up Allen. I believe Scott Boris is his agent, so yes, yep. know, that plays into it. Uh, that'll be interesting mm-hmm. how that uh, works out because Scott is critical of Brody when he got the job, and now all of a sudden he's got to do business with them funny how that works, but I have Always. a feeling that the Mets wouldn't have picked him if they didn't think they had a, not 100%, but a large yeah. percentage chance to sign him, and to me, this draft, and compare it to what you saw with, and again, I know you have the same VP of of, uh, of amateur scouting and whatnot since 2012-2013, so maybe there's not a big difference, but the mindset with Brody Van Wagenen, to me, goes back to his winter it's shooting big at the top. You know, he's hedging his bets a little bit with the college players, you know, rounds four through ten. But he knows, and you, you go back to all these drafts, if you don't shoot big at the top, very, very few players after the rounds four, five, six uh, can you rely on. Now, yeah, you have your Jacob DeGroms of the world and your Robert Gazelmans and your Seth Lugos, but the odds of you getting anything, especially as you get towards round, you know, eight, nine, ten and, and, and higher, um, you're not going to find anybody. So he's shooting big at the top. That, to me, is, is what you're going to get with him as a GM. Yeah, absolutely. He definitely shot high. And like you said, it's a lot of the same scouts, Tommy Tanis, 
Mark Tremuda, same guys kind of at the top. But from my understanding is Brody was very hands-on in ensuring that Matt Allen was drafted. And he talked to Scott Boris. And like you said, not 100%, never 100% until there's ink to paper. But the thought process is that they had some form of a common ground on what they'd be able to give him and that it should pan out. And it has to. I, I think there's no other way around it. I hate to make it seem like I'm putting down Beatty or Josh Wolf were exceptional prospects in their own right, but this is the Matt Allen draft. Everything that they did in this draft was to make sure that they can pay Matt Allen. So if they don't get it done, it looks very bad for them. But if they do, it's an absolute coup, and they had one of the most exciting drafts, at least, on, you know, we have to see how they go down the road. But on paper, one of the most exciting drafts that I've seen since I've done this for the Mets. And and they're not the only team that, that went with this strategy. I'm on fan graphs, and it looks like the White Sox, uh, the Reds, yeah. the Marlins tried this. It may, makes you yeah. wonder, and I know there's been some talk in recent days that it's a better bet to draft college players than high school. I know you and I have talked about this sure. for a long time. I mean, these high school kids, we, we've talked about it on the program before. Even when you sign kids out of uh, – uh, uh, internationally when they're 16, 17. It's years before you see them. Wilma Flores, oh, yeah. you and I were talking about for years. It seemed like he was yeah. here forever. And maybe that's why he, he's so beloved for, for Mets fans um, for, you know, even though he had, a, you know, an average at best career here. Uh, maybe the mindset's change where if you have a talented high school player that has a strong commitment to college, look, three, four million dollars is a lot of money I know that they have a larger percentage chance of making the big leagues, but let's face it, they're probably not. And you can always go back to school. I'm not anti-education at all. But give me at 18, and I got some good financial advice on that, uh, give me $4 million. Let me try to play pro ball. If I'm out of the league by 22, 23, go back to school. I got a good shot yeah. to uh, have a good life compared to other people graduating college at 22 years old. For sure. And another factor, which is, I think one of the cool things that MLB does, if you get drafted out of high school and you sign and go professional and baseball doesn't work out, like you said, 22, 23, you, you know, flame out or whatever, and you end up retiring and leaving baseball, MLB actually covers college, or at least some percentage of it. I'm not sure if it's 100%, but MLB will pay for a lot of your college by doing that. So that, that's a pretty cool thing that they do. Yep, and you can negotiate that in your contract with the team. Joe DeMeo, uh does uh, minor league coverage for the Mets over at SNY and also the seven line uh, long time friend. He does really good work. I'm glad he's finally getting some recognition on a larger scale because like he said, he did this in 2003. How old were you in 2003? Were you like 15 years old when you started doing this stuff? Cause uh, yeah, I remember yeah. meeting yep. you on a Met chat room and I'm like, how does this you know, <laughs> 15 year old kid know what he's talking about? And uh, yeah, he came on the show and sometimes people didn't give you credit. Sometimes people didn't give you credit, yeah. but, you put the work in, and it's been a long time coming, so good for you. I appreciate it, for sure. Yeah. What sleepers we, – we, we do the same template every time we talk draft. Uh, what yeah. sleepers – what are some of the players that we're not talking about that are going to get talked about? Because, like you said, it's a Matt Allen draft. Um, who, who in this intrigues you that won't get talked about and then maybe in two, three years, maybe less, all of a sudden, we see them up in uh, in flushing, and it's uh, maybe it's a component player, maybe it's a starter, who knows? But it's somebody that we should maybe keep a little bit of an eye on. Yeah, for sure. For me, I think they drafted three outfielders between rounds four and twelve that all have fourth outfielder slash like borderline starter capable abilities, and that starts at the top with uh, fourth round pick Jake Mangum out of Mississippi State, who the Mets actually drafted last year as a college junior out of Mississippi State in the 32nd round, and he opted not to sign. He's the all-time SEC hits leader ever and plays a great center field. Uh, there's a video clip yesterday playing in the Super Regionals. He robbed a home run. He has good speed, great bat-to-ball skills. Power is basically lacking. Uh, if you were to develop any power at all, then you're talking about a potential starter in the outfield. But I think he's a guy that you should be able to see. I, I think he would be the quickest to the major leagues of anybody that the Mets drafted. And a quality fourth outfielder, really gritty kind of player. He's the kind of player that fans will love to watch play. All-out kind of guy. And then in the sixth round, they drafted Zach Ashford from Fresno State, who also he's in 
similar kind of mold as Mangum with a little more gap power. It's going to be fun to see them kind of roam the outfield in Brooklyn this summer and see kind of how they develop. But I'm, I'm looking at two potential at worst bench pieces as major league players, which is awesome for senior signs because typically senior signs are guys that you're only drafting them at this point because of the money that they're willing to sign for essentially. Yeah. And look, I mean, I think on the broadcast last night, Fox had mentioned that 14 of the 40 members of the Mets uh, uh, 40-man roster are draft homegrown. And that's big because that was always a problem during the Manaya years. And look, we could criticize the Mets on spending and payroll, and that's been going on. But if they spend on this draft, and if you really look at when you add in the Cespedes and Wright dead money, which still goes against luxury tax, um, if you combine all that, if the Mets close the deal with, uh, with Matt Allen, uh, I don't think it's been a lack of spending. I mean, sure, do you want them to spend more? Absolutely. But it's not like it was maybe in post-Madoff 2011, 2012, 2013. I think, I think they deserve a little credit. I don't know if you agree with that. I know that's not a, a popular sentiment, but I, I, I feel like nobody says it or gives them any credit at all. Right. I, I think they're not given credit because they're, even though they're spending a little more, they're not spending at the level that everyone believes they should, given that they're in New York and so on and so forth. I think really the problem is just the who they're choosing to sign. Jed Lowry is making $10 million this year, and he's hanging out in Port St. Lucie. Wilson Ramos, just he's starting to pick it up now, which is great, but for the first year, month and a half, he was just hitting ground balls after ground balls and not going anywhere. I, I think it's more so the players they're choosing to sign versus – how much money they're spending for me personally. I don't, I don't just look at payroll and say, if you have this payroll, you automatically win. You know, it, it heightens your odds because the higher your payroll is, the higher you're paying players, the more likely it is that you're play, paying all-star type players. But it, it's, it's just about getting the right guys for the right cost. And I think they tried to do that this past offseason. It's just so much of it has kind of blown up in their face already. And Robinson Cano is a disaster. And they gave up. Jared Kelnick, who I loved last year, loved him. I compare him to Christian Yelich last year coming out of the draft, and that's before he went and has 14 home runs or whatever in single A. So they they just they need better decision making, more so than I guess pure spend this amount of money. Uh, and that's interesting that, and we have Joe DeMeo with us, SNY uh, Seven Line, talking about the draft because I'm that was on my list of things to get to. So. I look at the Seattle trade a lot differently. I don't look at it as it's Kelnick for Cano. I look at it as Swarzak Bruce for Cano and a money deal, and I look at it as Kelnick Dunn for Edwin Diaz. And I almost believe that's how Brody did it, and I'm sure that, um, you know, I don't know how Seattle looked at it, but if they could get rid of some of that money, take on some money that they've dumped, they've dumped already with Swarzak and Bruce, and get a couple of prospects to rebuild, they looked at it similar in that way. Now, I heard as well Kelnick compared to Marcotze. Uh, we don't know. Yeah. And, and I certainly know right. that, that, that when you look at it, it's probably a bit of an overpay for a closer. But Diaz is as close to a Roldis Chapman that's out there. And I, here's yeah. how I think Brody looked at it. Compete now. Get an elite closer. Who the heck knows what Kelnick's going to be? And maybe he's better than even he thought. And if – they're not in contention or he gets too expensive and he continues to perform at the level that he has historically, you're going to be able to flip him for equally good prospects at some point in the right. next two, three years. And I, and, right. and they have Nimmo because that's another name that came up as a, as a comp to Kelnick was Nimmo. Now maybe we're off. Maybe he's Yelich and look, you, you know, I'm, I'm going to say right now he looks more Yelich than he does Nimmo. Um, sure. but you don't yep. know. And to me, right. that is how the thinking went. And that's not horrible thinking. It doesn't look good right now, but that's not horrible right. thinking. No, it's not horrible thinking. Like I said, kind of, unfortunately, it's one of those things that when you look at it, it just hasn't worked. Like Diaz, I think Diaz has been awesome. Saved the Dodgers game and saved the Reds game in April or whatever where he gave up the home run. But save that, I think he's been great. The only issue is when the team's really not that good, a closer really doesn't make much of a difference. And it, that's kind of why it looks bad. I think if the Mets were seven games over 500 and competing for the division and in competition, I think the trade's being looked at a little differently because then the value of a closer on a contending team is certainly much higher than the closer on a mediocre team. 
look, this this Kelnick is going to be the media's version of Scott Casimir. They're going to take mm-hmm. this and they're going to run with it. Now Scott Casimir was worse sure. because even though they right. got well, they got Zambrano and they got Benson now for for Casimir. That was a lot different yeah. because you couldn't you couldn't justify that in any era. Kelnick right. for Diaz, unless he gets hurt or regresses, I can't see a contender. Even if it's as early as next month, which I don't think they would trade him next month. You no, would get I a big one. But think about it. If yeah. you put him on the market next month, you're out of the race. You put him on the market. You're, you're not going to get back some heavy duty. If you don't, shame on you. And I don't want to hear this nonsense about value because, you know what, the media is used as a tool uh, by teams to market value so they can get a better deal. I mean, look, Joe, you know this better than anybody. I can leak things to the media to get what I want. And a lot of times I think they hope that Jeff Wilpon reads it and forces a bad decision. Maybe I'm, I'm a little too conspiracy theorist there, but I don't think I'm too far off on that. Yeah, certainly the media has impact on baseball decisions. I think there's no denying that. And there's a lot of history of it kind of proving true. Justin Dunn and Anthony Kay were part of that same draft that we talked about earlier a couple of, uh, a couple of years ago. And both are pitching well. Anthony Kay is on the, on the cusp here. I saw a tweet yesterday. You want him to be uh, making his next start at Syracuse. Here's my question. Uh, is, is Kay legitimately a top-of-the-rotation guy, in your opinion, number one? And number two, it's a two-parter here, knowing the innings limits, knowing that there may be a need, and that's going to play out over the next 10 days, two weeks, see if the Mets are going to stay in this as even a wild-card contender. Could you see Kay being brought up to help this bullpen that needs help? Limit his innings, maybe a way to kind of get value now, not hurt him, hopefully not hurt him coming out of the bullpen, and then set him up for potentially jumping in that rotation as early as next year. I don't think he's a frontline starter, and that, and that's not an insult because I think there's I think there's fewer frontline starters than people think there are. I think he's a high quality number three type starter that is going to be able to eat innings. He gets some strikeouts. He, he's just taken great strides since college, and he had Tommy John surgery right away, right after their Mets drafted him. And so if he did not get Tommy John surgery right after, he'd be probably on the Mets right now starting. Uh, he was that He's that advanced of an arm. As far as him being part of the bull, I don't really like bringing up starters in the bullpen, especially in a lost year. And you're going to end up, they're going to trade Zach Wheeler. So someone else is going to, assuming they fall out of it, someone else will go into rotation. And then all of a sudden you'll find yourself burning Anthony Kay. And then I, I don't trust this coaching staff as currently constructed to properly manage his innings out of the bullpen. So I'd rather him just go to AAA ASAP and keep doing his thing there. And if you decide in September you want to call him up to start, I'm on board. Otherwise, I'd rather just hold him in AAA until next year. That's interesting. Um, let's assume, well, one way or the other, Wheeler you know, makes it through the season, Mets compete and contend you know, for something, or he gets traded. Is K your Wheeler replacement? Because the more I look at Wheeler, I know if you take out the national starts, his numbers are better. He's still right now below league average. I think he's a very solid pitcher. I've always, I've never been a big Wheeler guy. You, you know, from day one, yep. the mechanics. I, you know, look, Beltron, you got the best possible deal, but he never really, from day one he came up, I was always like, ah, you know, this guy just he just doesn't do it for me. But then you had the second half of last year. To to me, you know, it's still a risk going long term with him. I was talking to a scout a week ago. Still tells me he's a, he's late with his delivery. That's an arm injury again waiting to happen. Is K your replacement, right. number one? Number two, uh, assuming they stay in the race, or even if they don't, would you pursue Wheeler on a long-term deal after this year? I think as far as pursuing him on a long-term deal after the season, I, I would let him test the market, and I'd kind of see where, where it's looking. And certainly I think every player has a price. So if I could get him at a price that's reasonable enough, I'm not opposed to keeping him. Uh, but I do think does he get Patrick Corbin money? Does he get Patrick Corbin uh, money in your opinion? If he if he does, then he's not getting that from me. 
Um, but it's not, it's not impossible because it is not going to be a strong free agent market. So he has a chance to really cash in, which might hurt his odds of remaining here. Um, but as far as K t- being the replacement, I would say I, I really want to see him in AAA. So if we do trade Wheeler next month, I don't think the corresponding move is call up Anthony K and then just move on. I think I want to see him in AAA for a little bit because AAA – for a while, you always had to go to AAA. And then there was kind of like a few-year period where people were saying, just call them straight from AA. There's no value to AAA. But now, the way teams, you can even see how the Mets are loaded up AAA Syracuse. But with how teams are loading up AAA teams now, with major leaguers with experience, and guys who really, realistically, should be on major league teams, but just because of the market had to settle for minor league deals, you're you're facing real competition in AAA, so I think there's a lot of value to go there. So I'd like to see him there and see how it goes and play it towards the end of the year and see if he's ready then. Otherwise, just wait until the beginning of next year. And immediate replacement, you're thinking, you know, the Corey Oswalds, the Chris Flexons, Walker Lockett just came back, the guy they got for Kevin Ploiecki. He just came back from an injury. He's been pitching pretty decently in AAA. So those are kind of the guys I'm looking at because you trade Wheeler, because you're out of it anyway. So it's, I wouldn't rush a prospect when I'm out of it. Yeah, is there any – I mean, the bullpen, if you talk about K not making it, uh, you know, not an option in your eyes because of your philosophy out of the bullpen, I mean, is there guys that potentially, if this team stays in the race, could help out uh, some of the maybe the arms that they acquired when they're oldest in the last couple of years? Is there anybody not named Paul Seawald or Tim Peterson uh, that, that you think could help? In the near term? Yeah. I like Steve Valines a lot. He's side armor, very reminiscent of Joe Smith. Very, very similar to Joe Smith, as I'm sure you remember him. Uh, he, he's been unbelievable so far between double and triple A's. ERA's about one. So he, he, he's in Syracuse. I think they called up Tim Peterson today, I guess, as a corresponding move for Cano. I would have rather brought Valines up. And Tyler Bachelor is hit and miss. So he'll be back up, I'm sure, at some point. And I'd like to see a look uh, to Eric Hanhold, who came up for a day and then didn't pitch and got sent back down like last month or something. He was acquired in the Neil Walker trade uh, when we traded in Milwaukee. And he's been pretty good, and he's got a power sinker at 98. So I'd like to see him given a shot. And a sort of sleeper-type arm is Steven Nogasek, who's actually – the last remaining arm in the organization from the Addison Reed to Boston trade. And he was dominating double a Binghamton and he recently came up to triple a Syracuse where he's faring well so far. So I think those are like three to four arms that I think can help you, but certainly if you're contending, you're going to trade for a bullpen arm at the deadline. So you're going to go get Will Smith from San Francisco. You're going to go get Alex Colome from the white Sox, Shane green from the tigers, someone along those lines. If you're contending, that's got to be probably Brody's top priority is to get someone like that. I know you're at the ballpark, you got to go, but I want to grab you for two more quick here. Uh, you mentioned Josh sure. Wolfcomp, Lance McCullers. You know, we talked about Kelnick, and you brought yeah, brought up Yelich. Uh, Beatty and Allen, what comps do you have there? I mean, I, I, I hate doing this, but it's fun yeah. to, to, to imagine. Tough. What do you have for those two guys? Beatty is sort of reminiscent to me of Travis Shaw before his recent struggles. Like a big, powerful third baseman. He could play the position. He has a good arm. I think Travis Shaw is a pretty decent comp for Beatty. And Allen, that's tough. You're, I mean, you try to think of a big-bodied, just think of a big-bodied number two type starter in baseball. Matt Harvey? Um, Matt, Har- Matt Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. Um, I, well, I'm pre, pre-surgery, pre-thoracic outlet. Pre, pre-thoracic yeah, outlet. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I would just say just think of a repeatable delivery number two type starter with plus stuff, and he's right in the neighborhood with those kind of guys. Last one. Uh, Looking back on Sandy Alderson's draft, I had mentioned 14 of the 40 guys on the 40 men are, uh, you know, homegrown. Um, Looking back at that, I mean, uh, what's Sandy's legacy in in your opinion with the draft? Omar left him some stuff to help get him to the World yep. Series. Did he leave Brody yep. Van Wagen in something that if this team makes the playoffs in the next few years and makes a run, you're going to say, you know what, Sandy, you know, he had some duds, 
Uh, certainly, yeah. Brendan Nimmo will be a referendum on him, but did he leave him something here uh, that will be lasting? I think so. I think Sandy did a good job developing some players uh, for the organization. You know, Michael Conforto is going to be a key piece here. Pete Alonzo, Anthony Kay, all, all these guys were drafted under Sandy. So I think you're looking at a lot of pieces that we'll look back if the Mets become the contender that Brody hopes over the next couple of years. And the same conversation we had when the Mets made the World Series in 2015, we'll have again. And you'll look at maybe Ronnie Mauricio comes up and is a big impact player who's going to be, probably be my number one prospect in the system when I do an update uh, in the not-too-distant future. So I think Sandy did a good job. He left him some stuff. I don't know if it's quite as much as Omar left Sandy, but um, certainly Brody didn't come in with a, a bare cupboard, that's for sure. All right. Go enjoy the game. You've been very generous with your time. Good stuff as always. I'm glad to see you continue to make an impact in the uh, the Mets media sphere. Talk to you soon, Joe. Take care. All right, Mike. Take care. Appreciate it, man. That's uh, Joe DeMeo at PSL to Flushing, um, SNY, the seven line. Guy's been doing stuff since he's a, a young, young guy with no media, no outlet. like to think I helped him get a, a voice out there back in the 08, 09, 10, 11 when we had the old NY Baseball Digest. Dot com and uh, he's worked really hard at getting contacts and learning the scouting jargon and and, and all other things that go with it and and hey, listen you know you heard the clip take his analysis seriously it's uh, it's pretty good stuff he may not be on MLB Network but maybe one day he will uh, but he gives you a pretty good take and, and and gives you some content that I feel is just as good out there as anything you're going to get, uh, you know, this podcast, I hope, gives you as good a content out there as anything you're going to get. So anyway, let's take a quick break, wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more. Final thoughts as well, right after this. Hey, Mets fans, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now that's Mets M-E-R-I-Z-E-D online.com and get Metsmerized today alright final thoughts great stuff from Joe DeMeo I really appreciate him popping on and uh, since we recorded that on Sunday Anthony K has been promoted and uh, I think there are a couple of interesting uh, arms uh, down at in Syracuse. And I think the Mets are going to have to, when you tie it into K, let's forget about the draft now. We talked about that. That's two, three years down the road. When you look at this team and you look at some of the guys coming out of the bullpen, and yeah, if they're in the race, the reinforcements and what they can acquire is going to be a conversation more post-All-Star break. Maybe not quite as... Maybe maybe a little bit sooner because the, the, the hard deadline at the 31st. But if you look at Anthony Kay, Anthony Kay with an innings limits, and I don't know how the Mets view him, but you're gonna have you're gonna have an opportunity uh, to potentially bring him up. Um, I know they're probably looking to keep him stretched because if there is a, a long term need and he's pitching well in AAA over the next 10, 12, 14 days, even a doubleheader that pops up, he's he's a good chance to get a call. Whether they're in the race or not, uh, you know, I don't, they've already shown with Alonzo, they're not going to worry about service time. So if you don't, and you still have him stretched, can you bring him up as a guy similar to Lugo that can go a couple of innings, and then if you need to pop him in for a start – manage him with 80 pitches, and manage him through four or five innings. I'm not opposed to that. I know Joe doesn't trust this coaching staff. I understand that when you hand a young pitcher to a big league staff that's trying to win, things could get wonky. Remember how they had to put instructions on Chamberlain, Jabba Chamberlain with, uh, with Joe Torre? But I think you got to give Mickey and Island more credit than that. 
Uh, I'm not as 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 worried as Joe is on that. With all due respect, uh, and I respect a lot of what Joe says, I'm not quite as worried because I don't think the front office is just going to hand them over and say, "Yeah, treat them like a rag doll." Now the other guys, Nagosek, Villanese, and there's also a guy named Riley Gilliam. These are are uh, guy Gilliam they drafted the other uh, Villanese as well, and and then Nagosek was part, as Joe said, of the Addison retrade. Uh, those guys, uh, they have to be added to the 40-man, and, and I don't see that as a problem because I still see a lot of guys on this 40-man like Hector Santiago and Tim Peterson and, and Drew Gagne, and I know Callaway likes Gagne, and I was starting to like Gagne too, but he might be turning into a pumpkin and in, in going back to his historical trends, which uh, is a 4A player, a 4A pitcher. Uh, you might have to consider some of those guys. Remember in 2015 when they had... Dylan G and Jonathan Neese, and they had needs in the rotation. They went down to a Noah Syndergaard. They went down to a Matt. And I don't know if any of those names, any of those young pitchers that they have down uh, in the minors can be bullpen arms that can be brought up, be dynamic, and come up and and provide them help in the bullpen. Because you're going to need nine outs, and you're going to burn out a Familia and a Diaz and a Lugo who can't even go back-to-back days a lot of times. And Robert Gazelman, they may throw him until his arm falls off. They did that recently. You're going to need some more help. Villanese is a side armor. That's intriguing. Those guys tend to do well. I know his numbers in AAA aren't great. Nagosak, I haven't seen him pitch. Um, I would start to see which one of those three are the most developed. Who do you have the most faith in? Because we've seen Tyler Bachelor, and he's got an electric fastball, and, and he can be really dominant, but... He's another version, in, in, in uh, my, my opinion, of, Victor, uh, of Hansel Robles. Just another version of him. You had that. You know what you get with that. And that's probably better than Tim Peterson. And it's probably better than Jugano. But is that the guy that you want to trust in the sixth inning of a big game? You just took a two-run lead on the road. And you want to start getting some outs to bridge the gap to Lugo, Familia, Diaz, I don't know about that. Eventually, you want the veteran. Those names that Joe mentioned, the Will Smiths, maybe Mark Melanson, uh, Green from Detroit. You want those guys. But you're not at that point yet. You want to be careful about what you give up for a reliever. You know, Diaz is one thing. Edwin Diaz is one thing when you give up a Kelnick. You want a middle relievers? That could turn disastrous. You get Jeff Bagwell for Larry Anderson if you're not uh, careful. So... Uh, we'll see where it turns out. Uh, the stretch begins tomorrow against St. Louis. 23 games leading up to the All-Star break. Mets have some work to do. Uh, they're not where they want to be, but they're in a position now where they could take off. Mickey Calloway talked about taking off when they hit 500. Well, that starts tomorrow, and there's really no time to take a step back. There's no time for losing six out of eight games. They have an opportunity to push forward now. They survived the first round of the Subway Series got a big win on the road. Maybe their road woes are behind them. They needed that. Vargas is pitching well. Uh, everybody in the rotation starting to. I know Wheeler had a bad outing, but you know he's still a guy that gives you seven innings, three runs on most days. Um, he's got to step up against big teams like the Yankees, those type of teams, but that's a story for another day. So it's an opportunity now for them to move forward, and we'll see where we're at. So anyway, a lot of fun stuff. Glad you had a chance to uh, join me today. Uh, of course, I want to thank Joe DeMeo. Check him out at SNY, also at PSL to Flushing on Twitter. I want to thank the good folks over at MetsamorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast very soon. Uh, take care, everybody. <laughs>